this morning. I want to welcome you out. And um, we are going to Genesis in chapter 12. If you want to turn there uh, this morning, Genesis and chapter 12. So we uh, began last week looking at a new Sunday school. It's going to be a brief one taken right off the headlines on the a conflict that is going on presently in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. And so this dominated the news coverage for a few weeks. It began in early May, the most recent outbreak, but it has, uh, uh, of course, uh, raised a number of questions. And uh, the purpose of this study is, uh, I was talking with uh, uh, Pastor Martinez, Pastor Gamboa, about this and uh, a lot of people they kind of understand a little bit but are kind of vague as to the, the entire issue and uh, so i just wanted to kind of look at that with you because it is rooted in the bible and so if you were not here last week i highly recommend that you get the uh, watch it on video I, we have that available you can access that or listen to it because we had a lot of scriptures last week to lay down the foundation as to what is going on there, to appreciate what's happening in the world today. You can go all the way back to the Bible. And, and so Gilbert, why don't you read for us uh, 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 Genesis 12 verses one through three. I have a lot to get through today, but uh, we, I just wanna make sure we're all on the same page. Go ahead, Gilbert, read that. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So God told Abraham, I'm going to bring you into a land. And so last week we made it very clear that to understand what's happening in right now in the conflict between israel and palestine it has to do with land not religion okay, this is not the story of you know the the religious majority oppressing a religious minority because many palestinians happen to be muslim that is not the story at all it's about land that you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 12, that God said to Abraham, I'm going to bring you into a land. And uh, we're gonna look at that this morning and this whole idea. Now, last week, uh, I'm talking to the guys in the back there. Last week, we had a little trailer. Do we have that available this morning? Or do we, we do not have that available this morning. Okay, that's okay. Uh, next week, we're going to have something on that but I wanted to um, uh, 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 talk this morning about, about this very issue. So let me just briefly kind of remind you where we were, and we went through a lot of scriptures. God promised Abraham land. He did that three different times. He told Abraham, I'm giving you this land. And so uh, this was his promise, and the Bible says that that is what took place. But the problem is that Abraham uh, made some bad decisions uh, that uh, introduced another element. Remember, he was told you're going to have a son and him and Sarah are getting along in years and they're not able to uh, have a child. And then Sarah uh, decides to do borrow pretty much what was happening all around her. And that was that you had a, a man would have a wife, but as she got older, then he would have 
uh, a number of other wives so he could father more children. And so she kind of said, why don't we do it that way? And Hagar, uh, her uh, uh, maid is brought into the picture. She conceives a child, Ishmael. And no sooner does this happen than Sarah realizes that she made a horrible mistake because she has now introduced another heir. Rather than the child of promise, here's the child of the flesh. And Ishmael, who was born of Hagar uh, in his own right, is going to have many, many children. And he is now going to fight her, uh, fight Isaac for that inheritance, for that land, that, that the inheritance God gave to Abraham. Now you have Ishmael and the Ishmaelites who are going to come along and say, this is our land. And this is no longer the land that belongs to Isaac. We reminded you, as you go through the book of Genesis, it is really the story of land, whether it's Isaac, who in the middle of famine, God says, I don't want you to leave the land. I want you to stay in this land and not leave. To Jacob, who in the middle of a famine is forced to leave the land, but yet God has made provision through his son, Joseph. For 100 years, they're, they're, uh, they start out in favor, but we all know what happens after Joseph dies. Soon he is forgotten about, his statue is torn down, and the Jews become slaves in Egypt. And then what has happened, God raises up Moses and says, I want you to go and I want you to bring them back into the land. This is the story. This is the narrative of the Bible. It is all about this land. And then we have Joshua who brings Israel into the land of promise. It's a beautiful story. A kingdom emerges. God raises up David, Solomon. There's a glory as there they are in the will of God, in the place that God has them. But what happens over time as disobedience, rebellion, idolatry emerge, the Bible says that God says, I'm going to remove you from the land. And sure enough, we know that Nebuchadnezzar comes, Jerusalem is sacked, the temple is burned. Many of the people are killed. The young people are captured, taken captive, brought into Babylon, 70 years there in Babylon. And now God says, okay, enough's enough. I'm bringing you back to your land. And so where we left off last week was at the time of Jesus. So now we come all the way uh, to the time of Jesus. And so here they are, they are back in the land. Now, one of the things that we mentioned last week is the term Palestine. That term Palestine comes from the Romans who called it that based on the word Philistine. Okay, if you're, if you're a, you know that the Philistines, Goliath was a Philistine. So you know the story uh, of David and his fights with the Philistines. You, you uh, can read about Samson and his battles with the Philistines. They were the nemesis of Israel when it came to the land there. The Romans knew that. And so they named it Palestine after the Philistines, this ancient conflict that exists even to this day. When we read about Palestine, we're talking about Philistines, not necessarily uh, if you're asking me to trace it back uh, into their DNA, but their spiritual DNA, it's quite obvious that they represent that nemesis that is still existing today. So uh, I, I want to move along here uh, this morning. Last week, we had lots and lots of scripture. This week's kind of different. As we move out of history and uh, move away from the time of Jesus, uh, we're now going to be looking at history 
and the historical facts. And I hope you're taking notes and you're locking this down. This is going to come up sometimes uh, in work. And I'm not asking you to, you know, uh, have a, a jihad at work or anything like that. But it does help for people to know some facts. And the facts are there. And so we're going to look at Israel in the time of Jesus. And uh, let me just start right here. If you want to read, lift your hand. First Kings 9, uh, verse 7, Kim. Second Chronicles 7, verse 20. Uh, I see, uh, is that Chris? Is that you back there? I can't. Is that Mondo? It is Chris. That, that means it, okay, right there. You and Mondo look alike. And so, Second uh, Chronicles 7, 20. I need Isaiah 11, verse 12. Isaiah 11, verse 12. I, anybody some hands? Okay, Tracy, Isaiah 11, 12. Uh, uh, Brian, Isaiah 41. 18 through 20, I need Isaiah 35, 1, Isaiah 35, 1, uh, Luke, is that you? I, boy, I'm sorry, my eyes are blurry today. Okay, Isaiah 35, verse 1, and um, Isaiah 66, 8, I, Andrew, uh, Joshua 1, verses 3 and 4, Joshua 1, verses 3 and 4, Ben. Uh, okay, so we're going to look at these scriptures this morning. So here we are, the Lord Jesus comes and he is there, he is in Israel, he is uh, 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 ministering. The Romans now occupy the land. So they're living in Israel, but they're not in charge. We know that Rome has now taken control of uh, most of that part of the world. They answer to a Roman governor and uh, uh, there's all sorts of political unrest. Uh, the, the Jews hate uh, having them there. Uh, remember one of Jesus' early disciples was Simon the Zealot. That means that Simon was part of some pro or nationalist uh, Israeli group. Uh, in the mind of the Romans, they were, he was a terrorist. He is identified that way. And Jesus was able to touch this man. He got gloriously saved. Uh, and how many know even terrorists can give their life to Jesus and begin to serve God? So what happens? The Lord Jesus, uh, as he emerges, the argument that the uh, uh, Jews, the religious Jews use to stop Jesus, their rationale to Rome, because they had to have permission from Rome in order to kill him, was that Jesus was a revolutionary who was threatening Caesar's power. That was their political argument. They used politics and they said that Jesus is trying to create a nationalistic movement that is going to try to rise up. Uh, and uh, they pointed to his powerful impact. He had large multitudes of people following him, listening to him. And they no doubt had heard the stories of his miracles and about the feeding of hungry people and, and things like that. And so they represented Jesus as a political threat to the Roman establishment and using that influence, um, they were able to get Jesus Christ uh, to be crucified. After the Lord Jesus raises from the dead and the church begins to rise up and begins to minister, uh, this becomes more of an issue. And finally, what eventually happens in Israel and particularly in Jerusalem is there was a movement. It wasn't based in Christians, but there was a movement to cast off the Roman yoke, they began to rise up 
Uh, they began to have organized conflict against Rome. They uh, killed Roman soldiers. They rioted in the streets. Uh, and uh, that is a, a big part of the book of Hebrews because at that point now, Christians who are living uh, in I Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, are being drawn into this conflict. Christians are being blamed for this. That's why the, the book of Hebrews is written because there are Christians, Hebrew Christians, temple Christians, who are now trying to figure out what their identity is and where they is. And some of them were returning back to Judaism under this powerful patriotic appeal. So the, all of this is happening. And finally, in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus comes in and crushes Jerusalem. I got a quote from Josephus. You can put that up. Josephus was a, a, a historian who gives us some of the best contemporary insight and things that were happening. You have that. You got to tell me you have that. Okay. I need a thumbs up or a thumbs down here. Well, okay. All right. Let me just read it to you. Uh, it says this. Um, uh, Josephus says, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the whole city and temple except the three towers and the part of the western wall, and these were spared. But for all the rest of the wall, it was laid so completely even to the ground by those who dug it up to the foundations that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe that it had ever been inhabited. So here, you know, here's a man who's writing a contemporary history. He's talking about when Rome came in, they so laid waste to the temple, you would have showed up there, you wouldn't even have known anything existed. This is, uh, this is what happened. So this is what takes place at that time. When this takes place, when this happens, there's a group of Jews who flee to a place called Masada. They go there, it's, it's uh, not that far. Obviously, you don't have modern transportation. I've been uh, to Masada, a few people here have been there. And this was set up as a mountain fortress and it belonged to Herod. But during this time with complete social breakdown, these Jews, about a thousand of them, go up to Masada and they're going to try to remain a Jewish enclave in the world. Up now, everything is gone. There is no Israel. It's been smashed by Rome. They are completely destroying it and trying to destroy all Jewish identity. And so these thousand Jews go up to Masada and for three years, they held off the Jewish army for three years or the Roman army, I'm sorry, that besieged Masada. And so put the picture up. We got that picture. There it is. That's Masada right there. You can see how that seems impregnable that they've set themselves up there. There's no way for Rome to be able to, the Roman to get it. So what they did is they encamped below for three years. They had to supply an army for three years, camped at the bottom of this mountain. And what they did is they ended up building a siege mound. I've had the privilege of traveling many places in the world, seeing many things. Very few things I've ever seen impacted me. Like when I was up there at Masada and I looked over at this siege mound because they built a, a mound that 2000 years later, you're looking at what they did. They built this massive mound using Jewish slaves. So as it approached, uh, the, the defenders knew that if they tried to kill the, the construction workers, they'd be killing their own people. 
And it took three years and they built this massive siege mound in order to finally penetrate. And the story goes that when the Jews realized that they were about to breach the walls, they committed a, a mass suicide, 1,000 people. By the time the Romans arrived, there was nobody alive. Thus ended the nation of Israel for 2,000 years. That was it. That was the last light of the nation of Israel as a state. It disappeared from the earth for 2,000 years or thereabouts. So that's the story. When we talk about the land, that's the story. It began with God speaking to Abraham, Jacob, Egypt, Moses, the wilderness, Joshua, all that happened, Babylon, coming back from Babylon, and it finally ends on that mountaintop. But that is part of the prophecies that were given concerning the land. First Kings 9, 7. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated. For my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So here is this uh, prophecy that this would happen. You know, you read that at the time, 1 Kings chapter 9. You know, we're talking about the glory of Solomon's kingdom, 1 Kings chapter 9. At that point, David has a, a, a built a kingdom. By the time Solomon comes around, it is now a preeminent kingdom. It's so powerful that the Queen of Sheba is coming because she wants to see it, chapter 10. We're talking about the glory, and here this prophecy comes as they're standing now. Uh, the temple is completed. Uh, Solomon's house is completed. Uh, he has minds uh, and impact now. Uh, uh, he, he, the, it has become a, a jewel in the, uh, in the world. And this prophecy comes, I'm going to take it all away from you. Second Chronicles 7, verse 20. Then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I may have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So I will uproot them. And here they are uprooted, uprooted. 2000 years goes by. So, okay. Understanding that then I want you to think, look with me secondly about born in a day. So we have established this morning and last week that God promised Abraham land. He promised him over and over again that the story of Genesis is about land. The story of Exodus, uh, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy is all about moving back towards that land. And then finally, we know all that happened. And finally, and God said that there's gonna come a day where I'm gonna uproot you from that land. So we now come to modern day. And that is, that wasn't the end of the story because the promise was that God would once again bring that nation back to that land. So that's been lost now. It's over. By 70 AD, it's over. 73 AD, it's over. The Jews have scattered around the world. And yet God said it's not over for the state of Israel. That one day, a place that was in ruin and desolation would become their homeland that and they would flourish in the desert. So let's listen to these prophecies that pointed to that. Isaiah 11 verse 12. 
give that out to somebody. The, the next one's Isaiah 41, 18. Whoever has that, they can be ready. Go ahead, Tracy. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So here's the promise. He says that I will assemble the outcasts of Israel and I will gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's Isaiah eleven twelve. That he was going to bring them from the four corners of the earth. So here's a Isaiah that would have prophesied, oh, maybe 600 years before the time of Jesus. So 2,600 years ago. And he is, here's this promise, the four corners of the earth. Now, there said, wasn't that referring to Babylon? Babylon's 500 miles away from Israel. The four corners of the earth is literally what happened when the nation of Israel came back together. It's Jews gathered from South America, Australia, Asia, North America, the four corners of the earth gathered back into this place. And so this was already the part of the purpose of God. Isaiah 41 verses 18 through 20. I will open rivers in the desolate heights and foundations in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the axia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. So here's this powerful, powerful uh, uh, prophecy um, and uh, uh, that the glory of God would come back to the state of Israel. That there, this place that was a wasteland would be a place of tremendous bounty. Isaiah 35 verse 1. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Okay, so here again, that the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. You know, many people, uh, you know, we have this idea of the Middle East is all looking kind of like Saudi Arabia or El Paso, and it's just, just desolate. And when you, go, when you go there, one of the things that strikes you is it's nothing like that. It's bountiful. There are 70 million trees in Israel. It's a tiny little land. The state of Israel would be like San Antonio to McAllen. That's the distance. And, and it's, it's fruitful. Uh, the genius, they, they have a uh, uh, cutting edge of science and biology. I remember uh, going there and watching as this is 1994, I went there. The first time, and when you, you go there and you, you look and you see these this, uh, uh, fields uh, that are being farmed, uh, and because there are parts of it is very arid, the most arid land in the world, or some of the most is right there in that part of the world. And yet they were able to create where you'd see like a, a stalk or whatever they were growing, and then it would have like a, a bag or a bottle above it and water inside of it, but it's timed. So when they release that water, it is able to be applied to that plant, 
but it's it just, just enough and it's timed perfectly. So when the evaporation process takes place, another drop comes. And so they, even with whatever uh, uh, geographical limitations that are there, meteorological limitations that are there, they have been able to transcend that and, and have made it one of the largest citrus producers in the whole world. It's blossomed because of God said, I'm gonna blossom it. That even after that terrible event and what happened at Masada, he said, it's not over for this land. And that his promise was that he was going to be able to do that. And then all this is found in Isaiah 66, verse eight. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Isaiah 66, verse eight. 666, verse eight. It's right there on the big screen. such a thing who has seen such things shall the earth be made to give birth in one day or shall a nation be born at once for as soon as Zion was in labor she gave birth to her children okay you know I could I, I preached a whole sermon on this a couple years ago on the anniversary here's this prophecy of a nation born in a day and in and the way Isaiah puts it whoever heard of such a thing a nation born in a day and yet Israel can trace its day to May 14 1948 that was a day that the United Nations voted to legitimize the state of Israel. That happened, a lot of drama behind it. Harry Truman's president of the United States at the time, tremendous amount of pressure being placed on him by the Arab world, uh, even by uh, uh, some of those powerful politicians and leaders in America. George Marshall, who was Secretary of State, was very, very anti-Israel, nearly resigned his job out of protest. The only, the only thing that made Truman do, not the only thing, but probably the biggest reason Truman did it is that when he served in World War I, one of his closest friends was a man named Eddie Jacobson, a Jew. They built a close relationship. They actually tried to go into business together, but they remained, maintained a lifelong friendship. And it was Eddie Jacobson who went and visited Truman, made an appeal to him, and God used him. And then Truman... Uh, who had already said no, he had already privately told everybody he wasn't going to do it. After spending time with his old friend, he softened his heart. And when the United States of America, remember this, 1948, this is after World War II, most powerful nation in the world, the President of the United States said, I'm going to endorse the state of Israel. Uh, that was a signal to the UN. And in one day, Israel became a nation. So this is so important to appreciate with what's happening today. You know, the first thing that happened after Israel declared its independence or, or declared its statehood, war, war happened. They immediately went to war, 50 million Arabs went to war with 800,000 Jews. The entire part of the world went to war against them. At that time, Israel had, didn't even have a single airplane. Whereas the Arabs were being given airplanes and, and, and they had an air force. And uh, they were vastly outnumbered. Yeah, years ago, there's a great book called Angels in the Sky, and it's about uh, how uh, American pilots and some Canadian pilots heard about how Israel was under attack and didn't have planes. And these men who fought in the war volunteered. They literally stole airplanes 
You know, after the war, there were a lot of uh, military planes that were being mothballed and they literally stole them, created some sort of front, bought some old planes. Sometimes they just took them and they had, I think, seven airplanes and they fought against 50 million Arabs. And guess what they won? In 1956, they went back again one more time. They went to war and it appeared like they were vastly outnumbered and they won. 1967, it happened again. And what is known as the Six Day War, when, when uh, uh, the, the, the same nations rose up and thought they had finally amassed enough military power, the Soviet Union was providing them all of their weaponry, and in six days, they defeated the, the combined Arab nations, and at that time, were able to take back Gaza, which figures in this, and the West Bank. You hear those terms, Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, a lot nowadays, but, but uh, they, they were able to take that land back. And then in 1973, once again, and so uh, uh, four different times, we're not talking about little conflicts, we're talking about wars. We're talking about the, the Arab states rising up and vastly outnumbering Israel, being supplied by the Soviet Union, and yet four different times Israel prevailed and they prevailed decisively. So that matters this morning. So we're talking about a nation that God said, I'm gonna raise up, that happened. There is no Persia, folks. There is no Roman Empire anymore. There is no uh, glory of Greece anymore. There is no Babylon. Those are nations of antiquity. We read about them in books. There are people who live in that land. The only nation of antiquity ever to emerge is the state of Israel because God said it would. And when they were outnumbered again and again, once again, almost like reading stories from the Bible, God stepped in and gave them victory over all their enemies. So I hope you're with me because now I want to, using all that then say, okay, what are the role of the Palestinians? What do the Palestinians have to do with all of this? Because the Palestinian story is actually a change of strategy. Originally, for the first 25 years after Israel became a nation, the Arab states basically said, we're going to use our military might to destroy them, but it didn't work. They kept losing the wars. And even to this day, they keep losing the wars but what they've done is they've turned it all around now and basically said, Israel is no longer the little guy. Israel is the big guy oppressing the little guy. They've turned it around now. And if you pay attention to what's happening today, I drive down the road, I see bumper stickers, liberate Palestine, free Palestine. I imagine that bumper sticker uh, uh, used to say, uh, 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 whether it was Native Americans or uh, Hispanics or African Americans or anything, it's that these are now the new victim. They are, they are uh, changing an entirely different war. I had the privilege of going to Vietnam. I've been there a few times. And Chris took us uh, there um, uh, last time I was there to the Vietnam War Museum. You know, it's kind of interesting going to a war museum of the enemy and how they portray it. And when you read that, uh, one of the things that stands out to you when you go through that museum is that in their mind of the Vietnamese of that time, the communist Vietnamese, 
is that it really was never a military war. It was never really a war about that. The reality is that the American military vastly outnumbered, had far more resources. It was always a political war. And the war was getting the world to sympathize with the plight of the Vietnamese. You have whole sections, they show anti-war rallies around the world. People like John Kerry and Jane Fonda are heroes for their speaking out against the war and the anti-war movement in their mind. The real war is if we can convince the world that these people are being bullied and oppressed by the powerful, then we're going to get everybody sympathetic with our cause, which is indeed what happened. And so what we're looking, what you have to understand, what's happening today is a playbook. And that playbook is that this mighty, powerful, rich nation is oppressing these people, these poor, helpless people. Put up that quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. This is the saying, mark my words, you're going to hear this more and more again. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. This is a, 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 the, the cry of the oppressed. We are, we are, we are a, a, an oppressed, free people. And uh, basically what has happened is that we lived in this land for many, many, many years. We predate Israel and uh, these people that have come largely European and they have now come and they have just simply taken this land from us. Uh, and this is nothing different than when the Mayflower landed, uh, when Columbus came, we are an oppressed people. It's, uh, remember that. I, I, let me just throw one more verse at you really quickly. Joshua one verses three and four. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. Okay, so he says, remember there, from the river to the sea, God said to Joshua, I'm gonna give you from the river to the sea. That's what he told Joshua, when you're taking the land, I'm giving you from the river to the sea. And so their statement is, is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Okay, so I've got a bunch of quotes for you right now. Are we ready there, Joshua? All right, and, uh, uh, and so you gotta have to follow along with me because of time, but I, I, I um, wanna help you understand. So what's going on here now? Remember what I'm saying today is that the approach today is no longer war, the approach is that Israel has stolen the land from these poor oppressed people. And I wanna give you a couple of quotes. This is the, the message. Go ahead and put the first one up. Over, 50, over a 50 year period, the indigenous Palestinians faced an emergent European nationalist movement. If you'll notice the, the important words today, European nationalists, those are evil words, that succeeded in dispossessing them and transforming their ancestral, that's another important word, homeland, into a modern nation state that locates its genesis in the biblical text. So this is, this is, um, this is the argument that's for Palestine. So what's happened? Well, Israel came in, and as it came in, these are European nationalists, who've showed up here, they've dispossessed these people from their ancestral homeland. Why? Because 
it's in the Bible. So last week we spent a lot of time showing you that it's in the Bible and they're acknowledging that. Yeah, we know your argument. They have Bibles. They read this. They know the same scriptures that I, we did last week. That's the argument here. That these people, these national, European nationalists have come here, taken away the land of these, the ancestral land of these people. Why? Because their Bible says it's okay to do that. That's, that's the issue. That's what they're, they're saying. Go ahead, put the next one up. This is Muhammad Abbas, who was the Palestinian Authority president. He says, um, uh, our narrative says that we were in this land since before Abraham. Somehow that, forget the top part there. That's the guy from the last quote. Our narrative says that we were in the land since before Abraham. I am not saying it. The Bible says it. The Bible says in these words that the Palestinians existed before Abraham. So why don't you recognize my right? This is the argument. We were here first. So the Palestinians were there, they had the land and the Jews have come along and now they're claiming this land. And so these are very, very powerful words today. This is, there's, this, what happened in early May was not accidental, it was well-planned. Presently, there's a movement, particularly in Western nations, where people that are claiming uh, victimhood and raising past oppressions are saying this here in America, you know, Columbus Day in many places is now Indigenous Peoples Day. All of this, this narrative that these people came, took what wasn't theirs, made us live in oppression and on and on. Now that's the argument. These people here, and you'll find that many of the same people that back in last June were marching in San Antonio are the same ones that a few weeks ago were marching in San Antonio for the Palestinians. Same group, same people, because this is a, a, a common message. This is a theme and this is the message now. And that is that uh, this is a, a plight. You're gonna hear terms like it's an apartheid state, borrowing it from South Africa, which just means apartness. These people right here are oppressed and they are mistreated. Palestinians are oppressed and Israel is the oppressor. Okay, I've got time for one minute right here, Les. And Bethel, very quick though, we, we got a lot to cover. Ron, okay. Um, just curious about the role of Jordan in all this. I read somewhere that, that Jordan was like, uh, like kind of seeding that land of Israel so that they could, they could also have control of this as well. Well, yeah, I, Jordan claimed that, you know, you gotta remember Jordan used to be called Transjordan. All these nations, Syria, Lebanon, all these nations were, were just simply lawns drying after World War I. After World War I, you gotta remember the whole area was belonged to the Ottoman Empire. After it was destroyed, defeated War I, uh, France and England pretty much took control of the area and they just simply drew lines literally in the sand and said, we're creating these places. 40% of the population of Jordan is, is Palestinian, but they will not, are not recognized. This is, this is one of the things that's very interesting. Palestinians are everywhere. They're in Syria, they're in Lebanon, they're in Jordan, but they are not given any kind of legal status. They are not given any citizenship 
or allowed to move forward with their lives. And the reason they do that is they say, if we do that, we're going to lose our argument that that land, it belongs to them in Israel. So they have left them in this state. Okay, Arab brothers, they've left them in this state because it's more useful to them to leave them desperate. So that, that, that's a good point, Les. Beto, really quick. Yes. Um, during the 90s, there was a book that titled uh, Shadows of Power. I think it was put out by the John Birch Society, which is anti-communist. They're anti-everything. Go ahead. Anti okay. <laughs> well, it was very interesting because it spoke about what you're talking about right yeah. now, how uh, the Vietnam War was all about giving America a bad name and, you know, yeah. things like that. And Mike, this is more of a question, Pastor. It's like, uh, how is it that people in power rise up in our nation into political positions and and drive our country in that direction you know uh is this something from i mean it's got to be something from satan right yeah to drive our nation which has christian roots into a political narrative yeah. and, and path where it gives our nation a bad name I tell you what, boy, that's worthy of a whole Sunday school right there. But I'll just use two words, useful idiots. And uh, you have people Definitely. that you have people that whether it's from their own rebellion, just iconoclast, they just whatever uh, they want to destroy. Uh, one of the, an eye opener, not long after a uh, uh, number of years ago, I'd have to, I wish I would have pulled the article. I don't remember when this was going way back that uh, one of the uh, uh, defectors from the Soviet Union back in the 90s when he came, one of the things that uh, what came out was that so many of the anti-war movement was being funded by uh, Soviet Union. And uh, that these are people, yeah, you know, it is. I just throw this out at you, but I'm gonna tell you, a lot of the reason why, you know, you know, China gets away with a lot of, they get away with a lot of people are on the payroll through funding and all kinds of things. And one of the things they're finding out are problems with the virus. I heard something this morning that just, deeply troubling. You're going to hear more and more about it, I'm sure, about uh, uh, medicines that they came up with uh, back last fall. They knew were and were, were just were prevented from being used um, because people get funding. Professors get funding. People get the money certain ways. Lots of money in China. China's not a poor country. And a lot of that is spent. And so whether it's money or something else, you, you have that element. Okay, we got to move along here because I, I got to I got to get this further down the road. So I'm going to make the case this morning, uh, and I'm using quotes that will help us. So here's the argument. The argument is, yeah, yeah, we know all about that Bible stuff, but we were here first, and now we are being oppressed. We are, and, and you'll say we are we are the uh, American black, we are the uh, Native Americans uh, who were overrun uh, uh, during the Western expansion. We are the South Africans. Uh, we re are part of the oppressed peoples of the earth. That's the argument. It's our land. Uh, and uh, uh, we know the colors of the wind. You know, we have all this stuff figured out. And so that's the argument. Let me make uh, a case here. Palestine has always been identified with Israel. So the narrative is that, oh, these people left 2,000 uh, 2, years, but we have been, you know, this is this thing of, of just Zionist movement, 1880s, all this talk started coming from European Jews that we could go back to Israel. It's only been around 100 years. Uh, but if you look at history, you'll find that uh, even when the Jews left, they never left. 
You know, in, in among Jews, they had a when they said goodbye. You know what they said? They said next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem, it was always their land. And so I'm just going to give you a few quotes here. Put up the first one. At the end of the 15th century, the Czech traveler Martin Kabatnik encountered Jews during a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and reported that they still thought of the area as their land. The heathens, that is the Muslim rulers, oppressed them at their pleasure. They know that the Jews think and say that this is the holy land that was promised to them. Those of them who live here are regarded as holy by other Jews. For in spite of all the tribulations and the agonies that they suffer at the hands of the heathen, they refuse to leave the place. That was uh, the 15th, so we're talking uh, 500 years ago. The idea that somehow this is just something that happened back in the late 1800s, that's, that report is from 500 years ago. There are Jews here. This is their land. This has always been their mindset. In 1674, a Jesuit priest, Father Michael Naud, wrote that the Jews of Jerusalem were resigned to paying heavily to the Turk for their right to stay here. They prefer being prisoners in Jerusalem to enjoying the freedom they could acquire elsewhere, the love of the Jews for the Holy Land. So this is a Jesuit priest, and for the record, Jesuit priests were not sympathetic to Jewish causes. This is, these are historical, this is an historical account. Truth is, I could give you 10 more quotes, but for time I can't. The Jews have a saying. The Palestinians say, uh, from the uh, river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. Put up what the Jews say. A land without a people for a people without a land. This was their statement. This is what they believed. And there is uh, ample evidence that this has always been the case. Right? There, was, there was never like, what, what? This is your land, you want this land back. This has always been the vision, the hope and the dream of the Jew since when they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. So the argument that somehow that this is, uh, was never an issue, now all of a sudden over the last couple hundred years it's been an issue, but it, this is absolutely not. Even over an expanse of 1900 years, Jews wanted to get back to that land and that was their land. The second thing here is that Palestine was desolate for 2000 years. See, the, the, the narrative or that we're being told uh, is that, well, you know, you have these Palestinian communities functioning and, uh, you know, we just had our our, our, our world, you know, and, uh, and uh, these people just showed up and they just took our land and took this from us is again, not true. Remember what God said, God said this would be a desolate land. That when they left, nothing would grow there. Nothing would happen there. Jesus cursed the, the fig tree and the Bible says that it, the next day it withered. We're talking about land today that is some of the most prosperous land in the whole world. And yet for almost 2000 years, just lay in waste. And the idea or the suggestion that, no, 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 there was a, a thriving civilization of Palestinians who lived there. And then these people just came and just by, by, by their own might, just took control of the land and just put these people under oppression. 
is not true. So again, we have to go to historical record because uh, many people visited the land of Israel during this time. This wasn't, again, unknown. The historical record is people went there and wrote about what they saw. In the year 134, you got that? In the year 134, the Roman historian Dio Cassius states, the whole of Judah became desert. Now, this is 134. Okay, so Masada, I believe, was 73 AD. So we're, we're talking about, you know, maybe 40 years, uh, you know, uh, no more like 60 years later, but not long after. The whole of Judea became desert, as indeed had been foretold in their sacred rites fell of its own accord into fragments. And wolves and hyenas, many in number, roamed, the howling, uh, roamed howling through their cities. So here we are, we have a contemporary witness. We're talking about the condition of the land by somebody who comes in and they're just looking at it. Going to the next one. Renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost all its ancient grandeur and has become a pauper village. Bethsaida and Chorazin have vanished from the earth and the desert places round about them where thousands of men once listened to the Savior's voice and ate the miraculous bread, sleep in the hush of a solitude that is inhabited only by birds of prey and skulking foxes, Palestine is desolate and unlovely, and why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Mark Twain. So he's there, 1869. And, you know, write as only he can write. This is, this is the land. This, there, there's no mention of a civilization any kind of functioning society. There's no mention of it because it wasn't there. Nothing was happening. It was a desolate land with a handful of villages, people that were involved. John Dawson, so no nation has been able to establish itself as a nation in Palestine up to this day. No national union and no national spirit has prevailed there, 1888. Okay, these men wouldn't, you know, that was, what, 140 years ago or so? These guys aren't talking today. They're talking right there in the middle. They're, they're visiting the land. There is no nation here. Nothing's happening here. There's no civilization. There is no, there, there's nothing like that. This is a very interesting quote by a man named Lord Lindsay. He says, no other curse I conceive rests upon it than that induced by the removal of the ancient inhabitants and the will of the Almighty that the modern occupants should never be so numerous as to invalidate the prophecy that the land shall enjoy her Sabbaths so long as the rightful heirs remain in the land of their enemies. The land still enjoys her Sabbaths and only waits the return of her banished children. And the application of industry commensurate with their agricultural capabilities to burst once more into universal luxuriance be all that she ever was in the days of Solomon. What a powerful, powerful statement. He goes there 
And as he looks around, he says, this, is, this, this land is under a curse until the people of God come back. And when they come back, it's going to blossom. And here we are today. We are eyewitnesses to that. God would not let that land be occupied. He would not let that land be occupied. So I'm not going to let you do it. The, 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 the message that here are these people living in this land, this is our ancestral home, is absolutely not true. Somebody, uh, uh, I think I put this one up, there is no trace of support for such an idea in history. No archaeological evidence or evidence of any other kind has ever been found to substantiate a link between the ancient Canaanites or Jebusites and the modern day Palestinians. Palestine was the name of a region, but never a people or a political party. There was never the word Palestinian. That is a new word. Never existed. By the end of the 18th century, only 250 to 300,000 people lived in Palestine. That's it. This is, these are the facts. This is what's happening right here. Uh, let me just give you one last quote. I know I'm going a little over. There's so much more I could get to here. The Palestinian people does not exist. Okay, the one who is saying this is an executive of the Palestine Liberation Organization. He is saying this. This was not a public comment. This was a private comment. But this is what he said. The Palestinian people does not exist. The creation of a Palestinian state is only a means for continuing our struggle against the state of Israel for our Arab unity. In reality today, there's no difference between Jordanians, Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese. Only for political and tactical reasons do we speak today about the existence of a Palestinian people. Since Arab national interests demand that we posit the existence of a distinct Palestinian people to oppose Zionism. So that's, that's where we're at. Boy, I'm out of time. We'll pick this up next week. All right, Lord bless you.